filibuster is supported through patreon by listeners like you check us out at patreon.com slash filibuster we also get support from the ehrlich law office discrimination wage and litigation solutions for the district of columbia and northern virginia they handle workplace discrimination non-competition and non-solicitation litigation civil rights and a whole lot more for a free consultation go to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster Jason, I know you're you're aware. Ben, who's not here, is aware. My my wife comes from Kentucky. I come from very close to Kentucky, and we enjoy the Kentucky Derby. We used to host a big party, actually, it turned into a big party for for a little while uh, every year for the Derby. And then kids happened, and we don't host that party anymore. <laughs> um, this year, we went to another friend's place to watch the race, and it was it was a very kid friendly party uh kind of potluck style but the weather was gorgeous so the kids were all playing actually in the alley behind the house and this was in alexandria and the Mm -hmm. alley was very clean it was not like the alley behind my house here off of north capitol street in the district and uh your alley there is is when i think of what it would be like for a child running around is mostly like lots of hard surfaces uh Mm -hmm. and the possibility of a car coming through yeah, uh, that's the the alley to access my street, which mm-hmm. you do have to do. You have to drive through an alley to get to my street. But yeah. there's also an alley behind my house that is much less trafficked because you have to make a very tight turn to get oh, into okay. it. So, um, but still, you know, hard surfaces everywhere. Yes, hard surfaces. It's, you're you're likely to find a broken surfaces. bottle. <laughs> yeah, they do. Uh, this alley was also hard surfaces, but it, it did not have broken glass or hypodermic needles or anything like that in it, which which made it a good place for the kids to ride tricycles and and have hobby horse races. And it was great fun for all involved. And then Justify won, which he was the favorite. And uh, he uh, he broke some kind of curse that went back to the 1880s, I guess, because he didn't race at all as a two year old horse. Um, and then as a three-year-old won the Derby, which hasn't happened apparently in 140 years. So yay that it was also a very sloppy race and kind of impressive that the race that he ran, uh, Jason, tell me you did something, um, debaucherous for the Derby. Uh, it was also one of my closest friends birthday. Um, so it was a uh, birthday party and it was Cinco de Mayo and it was Derby. I'm getting my popcorn out because this is going to be an epic story. Uh, so I, I asked, you know, a couple weeks ago because my birthday was two weeks ago and I saw him that weekend and I was like, do you want to do anything? Um, whether it's for your birthday or the Derby or whatever. And he was like, um, let me, uh, let me see what the, the wife has to say and, and all that stuff. Um, so like a few days go by and then he's like, yeah, if you just want to show up at the house, uh, we can hang out. And that was pretty much as ambitious as it got. Um, though he did buy, um, uh, mint and the night before made a big bottle of uh, mint simple syrup so we could have juleps. Excellent. Um, so we did we did the julep thing. Uh, we cooked out on the grill before it started to rain. Um, and then mostly we made fun of a lot of NBC's coverage uh, of the Derby because it was pretty silly. Um, I mean, it should be silly. The Derby right. is it's a big social event that's mostly silly. Right. And, There's a lot of uh, loud uh, and outrageous clothing, um, yes. which is always fun. 
Um, I think that the best thing that NBC ever did, and they, they've done a lot of things to, you know, earn my ire over the last several years. But um, one of the things that helps make it a little better is putting Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir on the Derby and letting them just let their freak flags fly because right, they are because, amazing. Right, they are they, joy they're, personified. They're a good combo. And the event, the event is already weird. Um, and they're not the kind of folks who it's like, you know, if you ask Johnny Weir, if he's willing to wear a, uh, Twitter activated robot on his chest, he's not going to say no, he's going to say, oh, well, tell me more. Um, and so, right. uh, there was a Twitter activated, uh, mechanical horse of some kind, uh, that people could tweet a hashtag and then it would make the horse move, which I'm sure was probably irritating for him after a while or either that, or he got just drunk enough where he didn't, he couldn't tell it was there anymore. I hope it was the latter. He um, also wore a triple crown fascinator on his head. Is that what that was? I didn't, I didn't hear an explanation of it. I just came in and saw yeah, a it was, hat and was like, all right, uh, I'm on board. What, whatever. A, it was three crowns attached to his head. So not a hat that sits on your head and is held there by gravity and friction, but something that's actually clipped into his hair. Okay. And there were three of them because horse racing, triple crown, this is the first jewel. Uh, not the first crown, mind you, the first jewel. But yes. he and his fashion team uh, went very literal and the world is better off for it yeah. because uh, Johnny Weir, you be you. I love it. So I have to ask, um, is he going to follow? I noticed um, the the jockeys have their layers of um, plastic wrap on their goggles so that when yeah. the mud kicks up, they can just peel it off. Is he going to peel off a crown for each uh, each leg of this until he gets to the end and he's just got one? I don't um, know. He might add three more for oh, okay. the fitness. I like the six, this. A double, then, triple crown, and then have the nine Belmont, crowns. Have like a solid like foot and a half thing coming off of his head that has to be attached to his hair somehow. Yes. Um, it, by the Belmont, it, assuming justify wins in right. Baltimore when they, when they get to long Island for the Belmont, it'll be straight up a, a nine crown stacked in such a way that they are as tall as he is just on top of his head. That's he, he will be double height. Look, if any, if anything, like, at least, at least that makes like if you're not interested in who whether a horse wins the triple crown or not, you still kind of want to see whether this hat can stay on his head or not. Um, I, I want to see them. I want to see them put him on a horse. It's a structural <laughs> achievement, I think that that it becomes is. interesting at that point. It's really engineering, a feat of engineering. And I never expected to say that phrase about Johnny Weir, but I'll take it. Hey, hey, welcome in. This is Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by Jason Anderson. Ben Bromley is homesick right now. Um, feel better, Ben. They they tell you when you send your kids to daycare that your kids will get sick, and you think you're ready for that, and and you might be. What they don't tell you when you have kids and you send them to daycare is that you will get sick. You will get sicker than you've been while sober without food poisoning ever in your life. And uh, Ben is is dealing with the consequences of that right now. And hopefully he feels better by the time you're hearing this in your ears. Uh, we are all from blackandredunited.com, where we write about soccer, DC United in particular. And uh, tonight we are going to be previewing DC United's trip to Utah to face RSL. We'll be doing that in the second segment. In the first segment, we're going to look around the rest of MLS uh, in, in the Eastern Conference, 
to kind of get the lay of the land where DC United sit in last, but that's okay. It's still early. <laughs> right, Jason? Ourselves. Yes. <laughs> Before we do anything, though, Mr. Anderson, what are you drinking? Uh, I'm keeping it very simple tonight, in part because it, earlier it crossed my head that I might want uh, another mint julep, but I didn't have any mint, and I didn't have time to go get any mint, so I don't have a mint julep. Um, and so I, I steered the other way and just went uh, with uh, some tequila. So I have uh, Olmeca Altos Reposado, uh, as is um, as is becoming custom, I guess, these days. Um, but yeah, uh, just a really, really good uh, value tequila. It has no business being as cheap as it is. What was the name of that again? Olmeca Altos. All right. I am drinking a, a very DC made up cocktail, kind of a play on a Manhattan, I guess, okay. but with uh, Cotton and Reed's dry spiced rum mm-hmm. uh, instead so, of wait. So, so this is this is your drinking rum. It is not, I, not as a punishment, not uh, to break curses or to start curses. Well, uh, just not not as punishment, okay. but uh, one to support a, a good DC business. Okay. And uh, to 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 try to get some good juju going into this room. Okay, so it is so it is to try it and is, and that, that thought okay. had crossed my mind that DC United is going to start playing games on mostly a weekly basis going forward. Yeah, which the... is a change, and I want to get uh some good feelings and and a good sacrifice to the soccer gods in the form of of that. Uh, and then I have some some Capitoline Rose Vermouth in there and some Angostura bitters. It turned out to be a, a very herbal drink. If you, if you like herbal concoctions that taste almost like, like a, an herbal tea, a very strong herbal tea, albeit, but uh, there's a lot of flavors happening in this drink. And I, I didn't have anything to kind of put on as a garnish. I think Mm. that probably could have something, you know, maybe a little citrus, maybe, um, Maybe even some grapefruit. I don't know. Uh, I'd want to play around with it to to kind of tie all the flavors together a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it, it probably could use one more thing, and I'm not sure what it is. Um, if you're a mixologist, tell me I'm crazy or or help me out with this because I would appreciate you know honing this drink. Um, and then you can make me drink rum again in the future, <laughs> which I know for some reason people want to do. I, I have a question before we push into the show. Okay. Um, the juleps uh, that my friend was making were two parts brandy and one part rye. Um, Interesting. And they were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, I was asked, I assume that you've had many more juleps than I have uh, in your time. And I wanted to know if you've ever encountered that, uh, if it's if it's a variation that's out there that's that you just haven't tried, or, or is this just, uh, I don't know where he got it from. I didn't bother asking. He was like, here's a julep. And I was like, oh, great. And then later I was like, is this... Uh, this isn't just rye, is it? No, I've never. I mean, normally it's it it's bourbon because Kentucky, right? And right. You know, a julep's a sweet drink, and bourbon makes it even sweeter. Yeah. Uh, but but having the spiciness of the rye and and I guess brandy can be sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Depending on how much residual sugars in it. So so I guess that that's a way to make it a little more complex, a um, mm. little more grown up flavor, I guess. I, I had never seen that before, but I really only drink Ricky or, or drink juleps around Derby time. They're they're okay. a little bit more high maintenance than I'm 
I'm usually willing to do for a quick at home cocktail. Right. Um, especially since I don't keep mint simple syrup on hand and I don't always want to muddle a sugar cube. Right. All right, then. Uh, yeah, so anyway, I, I hadn't seen that, but that's interesting. I might have if, to try that next yeah, year. Uh, I remember it. Two parts, two parts brandy, one part rye. Standard amount of simple syrup with a uh, mint leaf bruised and then rubbed on the lip of the glass. Okay. Yeah. Nice. I like it. It was good. So DC United is coming off yet another harrowing bye week, and uh, I know I was scared. Yeah. You never know what's going to happen in that bye week. With, with some teams now having played double-digit games, DC United, I think, have played seven, but a couple of teams have now crossed that threshold to ten games. That means the season's almost a third of the way done for them. Uh, we figured, let's take a look around at the Eastern Conference and see where things stand, see what's up. Uh, the, the first name, we're going to start at the, the end of the list. We're going to start in tenth place, which is still higher than DC, we know. And work our way up the, the table to first place. And this can't be right, Jason. It says 10th place here, Toronto <laughs> FC, defending everything champions. Um, obviously, they were in the, the Champions League where they fell in the final on penalty kicks. Uh, they, they could have really been all of North American trophies that they were eligible for. They could have held all of them at once. Yep. Um, they came tantalizingly close to doing that and now they're in last place uh and their mls season is really just getting started right now yeah it's it's a an utterly bizarre season for tfc um they're like dc in that they've only played uh seven games um it's weird that they're down here with dc at the bottom um part of that has been They've been rotating. They've been willing to uh, sacrifice in the early part of the season. They've sent a bunch of um, B teams out. Uh, they've lost a few games to teams that aren't very good. They've lost to Montreal. Um, they lost at Colorado, um, which was a B team game. Um, they got blown out by Houston, but that was, again, that was a, their their B team again. So, um on one hand, it's it's strange because they've played a lot of soccer games. They just haven't played a lot of MLS games. They've actually played almost as many Champions League games, or actually, I think it's more. I think they played eight because of the new structure. They played eight Champions League games, uh, mm-hmm. but only seven MLS games. So um, the you know the downside for United is that they're not going to stay down here. They're going to climb up and take one of those playoff spots. Uh, you can be sure of it. Um, they got back on track uh, against Philly um, this uh, on Friday. So they beat Philly three nothing, and it was a three nothing kind of game. Like it wasn't even very close, um, which kind of has me a little worried about. Uh, we're recording on May seventh, so in a month, uh, DC has to go to Toronto and face the team that just demolished the team that just badly outplayed DC United. Um, so I don't know what the math on that is. It feels like it ends with Toronto scoring nine. Um, they did this without, uh, Altidore as well. He wasn't even in the 18. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's not good news that DC still has to play TFC a few times because they are definitely going to get back to, they, there's no, I don't see much of a sign of a, um, 
a hangover there. I mean, if they were having that Champions League hangover, they probably would have struggled a little bit with Philly, who were all of a sudden had something to feel good about for the first time all year. Um, and instead, they just squashed Philly, as you would expect. So um, unfortunately for DC, this means that one of the teams that's not in a playoff position is going to go get in there, which is just one more team that DC is going to be trying to keep up with. Yeah, that I was of two minds when DC United let that Toronto game when they were getting ready for the Champions League final uh, or semifinal, whichever round it was. Mm-hmm. DC United let Toronto reschedule that game uh, to to the to June essentially, and I was of two minds because DC United needed every second they could get on the training ground and against Columbus uh, coming off a of bye week, it looked like it was worth it there and so i was like okay so we'll we'll use this bye week against philadelphia get a good result there and keep building and it's going to be good and then they came out against philly and you know well we all know what happened yes and it makes me feel a lot less good because the it, it means that that bye week was potentially wasted uh right we'll see how they respond to that philly game and another bye week against rsl um uh, this coming weekend but it, it was a chance for a, kind of a some free points, uh, essentially Maybe. in Toronto, or not not even free, but easier yeah. points, more attainable points right. than what I mean, we're going to see next I, month. I will say this: um, if DC hadn't gotten that buy um, and had to play TFC and then Columbus, uh, as the schedules were originally written. If they couldn't have gotten anything out of the TFC two lineup, they would have been playing against. It would have made like if you think things are bad now, or the yeah. you know the overall vibe of the team is bad right now, it would have been so much worse if they also had in in the midst of all that uh, no uh, success against TFC two, and then possibly not the um, quite as sound. You know they they. Uh, it looked like going into that Columbus game, they used those two weeks to plan for Columbus and that was it, um, which is good because it got them the win. Um, and, it, and it actually gave them a fairly good uh, performance until the red card and it became a, a different sort of game. But um, yeah, it, it could have been much worse if they had gone and not won that game, which I think at this point we have to say is a fair thing to worry about. But I guess it's also Schrodinger's game. We don't actually yeah. know if the game is alive or dead. <laughs> it's both until it resolves. Uh, moving up the ladder slightly and most likely temporarily based on where Toronto is now. Uh, we, we come to the other three teams below the red line and I'm saying them all at once because in my mind they are all in the same position being out of the playoffs and deservedly so and most likely there to stay uh philly's in ninth chicago's in eighth montreal is in seventh montreal might be the worst of the bunch but they're the most fun to watch anyway uh yeah the the impact uh have already scored 14 which is not elite but it's it's pretty good um and they've given up 23 in nine games which is astounding um they i tweeted out last week um a uh a, a screenshot of a, a spreadsheet i keep of uh, set piece goals and i haven't updated it completely to this the games from this weekend um but i know that coming into the week uh 
Montreal was by far the worst set piece that they uh, defense. They'd already given up seven goals on set pieces. Uh, and then they proceeded, even in a 4-2 win over the Revs, they still proceeded to give up two set-piece goals. Um, and but they were all like, they weren't even just like, well, you know, the ball took a bounce and blah, blah, blah. It was like Wilfried Zahibo gets a free run at a, a cross. It was like a training ground exercise with, a, with no defenders. Um, and they're going to keep being in high-scoring games because they're going to keep conceding. It, it, I don't see... Evidence. I mean, they're nine games in their season. Um, they're kind of they are who they are. Um, I don't see any evidence of a team that's going to straighten things out uh, from set piece defense, which means they're going to keep having to push for goals because how do you win games if you keep giving away one a game on a set piece, um, which they have They're average. They've given up nine goals in nine games. Um, so, yeah, they're they're fun. They've got Ignacio Piatti, who is. I honestly probably the league MVP right now, as much as um, people are going to talk about Miguel Almiron, I think Piotti is actually doing more for Montreal. And is, I mean, if you take him off of that team, they are dead last uh, and not, I mean, I, I want to say way down at the bottom, but obviously there's only five points between zero and, and uh, where DC is, but um, they would be a disaster. It might be at zero. <laughs> I mean, Piotti, like I said, it was a four, two game this weekend. He scored a goal and had three assists. I mean, he really is, uh, basically it's a lot like Diego Valeri and the Portland Timbers last year. It's just Piotti with Montreal this year is, a, uh, um, you know, he's just hauling that team and whatever they good they do is going to be because Piotti did it. Um, so yeah, of the amorphous blob here in the middle, they're definitely the most interesting team. If also, uh, perhaps the most shambolic, um, you know, I think Philly is orderly and they, it's, it's, they're very, I, I've got to say, I, I kind of, on one hand, want to admire the fact that they've stuck to their guns for so long without panicking, but I feel like the day of them panicking and making a move uh, of some kind to change the way they do things should have already come. Um, because other than the game against DC in which they played very well, um, you know, it, it wasn't just that DC was bad. It was that Philly also was good in that game that's pretty much it for Philly playing well. They don't have uh, another good game to fall back on. They beat the Rebs on opening day, but the Rebs had a red card in that game. Um, and two? other than that, was it one or two? It might be two. I, I think both their starting center backs got red carded in that game, the Rebs. Uh, that sounds right. Um, that so sounds that, right. That, that that's sounds a good like way to win if you're the other team. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Union have lost to, they got blown out by Colorado. They failed to beat San Jose at home. Um, you know, the only team that the only team they've really beaten at full strength was DC, which let's be honest, DC's in last for a reason right now. Um, so yeah, the the union appear like a team that's going to stay in ninth or falls the tenth or eleventh. I don't know that I see them going up much at all. Um, at least long term. You know, they might bubble up a couple points because they're, you know, one point behind Montreal who are in seventh. Um Chicago Chicago, I can't really get a handle on. They've already lost three times at home. Um, Chicago's a weird team, too, just in recent history, because they were bottom of the conference for several years, Yeah, unable to win games. They set the league record for draws. and yeah. I think they set it, and it was when they broke their own record. Yeah, um, I think that's like right. They, they had a season where they had like 16 or 17 draws, and then, then the next year they did 18, which is over half the games, by the way. Yeah. 
And then last year they got Dax McCarty, they got Schweinsteiger, and they they rocketed up the standings and they looked like they knew how to play. And then this year happened and they're they're trying Schweinsteiger out as a sweeper, an old school like right. Beckenbauer sweeper. Right. Um which has been pretty it's been pretty interesting to watch because um he uh he jumps into the midfield a lot and sometimes it'll just be for a play and sometimes it'll be uh the score will have changed and they'll decide to stop playing three in the back and they'll move him up in the midfield and pull the wing backs and play a back four. Um and then they'll change you know the score will change again and they'll change back again. Um they're you know if I keep notes uh on when I watch a game I keep notes on when teams change formation and they're they're the ones that burn up the most paper. Um the the fire because they also move their front players around a lot. Um, there was a stretch of one game where Nemanja Nikolic was playing left wing for a while, not just for a, a couple minutes. He was out there for like 20, 25 minutes. Um, they are, they're weird. Uh, the fire are not afraid to get weird. Um, you know, I, I, I'm looking at their results right now and it's like, you know, they, uh, they came back to tie Toronto in Toronto a, a couple weeks ago. Um, they just lost to Atlanta, but they didn't get slaughtered. Um, they beat the Red Bulls in uh, at Red Bull Arena uh, back on uh, April 21st. But they've also like they've lost at home to the Galaxy. They lost to Minnesota. Um, I yeah, they're, they're only they're... minus two on goal differential. They've scored twelve, mm-hmm. yeah, which isn't I... a great number from eight games, but it's not bad. Right. They're, they're not bad or good. They're just, it's, it's always something strange um, with Chicago. And I, you know, Panovich is big on tinkering for, from game to game. It's, it's, um, he likes to make changes based on his opponent, uh, who's healthy, et cetera, more than most coaches in the league. It's actually, it's funny that him and, or that Chicago and Philly are uh, tied on points because Jim Curtin never changes his lineup unless someone's hurt or, or suspended. Um, and never changes his approach. It's always exactly the same thing. Whereas Chicago, it's like, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe this week, uh, Schweinsteiger will play as a, as an old school 10, uh, rather than as a libero. Um, you never know. Um, so yeah, the, the fire, I mean, the fire also cycling, uh, I think all four of their draft picks got contracts and are actually getting playing time. Um, hmm. and you know, Mo Adams was someone that people talked about as a first round pick and he's getting some time. But the other guys they took uh, during the second half of the Super Draft, the, the part that you call in for in a conference call, those guys are on the field. Uh, Elliot Collier, uh, Diego Campos, those guys are still getting minutes uh, week to week, which is uh, it's not what you expect from a team like the Fire that, you know, kind of made their let's move into um, – modern day MLS, which a lot for a lot of team means, you know, the draft picks are maybe going to play for your USL affiliate. And instead they're, they're out there doing an old school MLS thing, which is like, we have to get some guys to fill the squad out from the draft this year or we're screwed. Um, and they're not even, it's not even that they're throwing them out there because they have to, those guys are actually pretty decent. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, the, the fire, they're weird. Um, but I will say if <laughs> you've got, they might go ahead. Even with their weird, and also they have the defending golden boot winner, and they're also in for Fernando Torres. So, right. you know, just to be weird, that's where they are right now. Yeah, I, that situation is maybe one to keep an eye on, because if they bring in 
uh, Torres and they've got Schweinsteiger and they've got uh, Nikolic. Um, Nikolic and Torres don't strike me as compatible. They're both number nines. They both want to be the same same spots. They both want to run the channels. Um, if you're going to bother going to get Fernando Torres, maybe Nikolic is expendable uh, and maybe DC United or a team in similar goal scoring need uh, could possibly make a phone call and maybe package some uh, allocation money together to try and get him um, because it's good to score goals. It turns out. Yeah. We, we thought the same thing about Ola Kamara and you know, the, the transfer window closed without DC United sending a boatload of gam tam and uh, whatever else to the LA galaxy for Ola Kamara. And I'm still sad about that, but I'll get over it. Sad or uh, angry? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. You can feel two feelings at the same time. Moving above the red line, and this is a weird place to find this team. The New England Revolution are in sixth. Uh, what's up, Brad Friedel? He's, uh, <laughs> he's got the revs. The, the phrase I keep seeing and hearing is punching above their weight. Um, I don't know that I buy that because there's not a lot. There, there's Toronto FC who have mostly been playing bench players in MLS so far this year. But other than that, there's not a real heavy hitter team below them. So they, they might be punching exactly at their weight. It's mm-hmm. just that their their weight is seventh place or eighth place. And right now, TFC has just been spotting everybody points. So I, I think they're the most likely team above the red line to to fall below it. But I've been wrong before. And Brad Friedel may have caught very weak lightning in a bottle, but lightning in a bottle nonetheless. Yeah, um, I, I, the the revs are are really an interesting case because I think Friedel hasn't really done that much uh, other than change the the idea of the team to high press. Uh, I don't think they have a a better group of players this year um, than they did in the past. They've spent most of their season with Jaleel Anibaba. Uh, starting at center back and, and Anibaba is a solid, you know, role player. If, if he's in your squad in the spot that Kofi Opare occupies for DC United, that's pretty good. Um, but you know, you don't want to be starting him all year long, but they, uh, that appears to be the case. Um, they upgraded at left back and, and Wilfried Zahibo, um, in preseason Zahibo looked like he was just going to be a walking red card. Um, but he has toned it down and figured it out a little bit. He figured out how the league is going to call games. Um, and they've been pretty effective. I don't want to say good because I don't know that I've actually watched them and thought, wow, the revs are good. I thought, well, the revs are competent. Um, they don't seem to be shooting themselves in the foot. Um, they beat up on teams that are not, either not very good or in uh, the case of Montreal, Montreal went down a man and uh, they scored four goals on, on the impact. Uh, That was the beginning of April. Um, You know, they're not, they're not necessarily the sum of their parts. It's, it's, it's weird because the revs, you know, they kept Lee win on the bench or not even on the bench, just out of the squad entirely uh, for so long. Uh, Kellen Rowe barely plays. um, And yet, they're managing to, you know, they've got 15 goals in nine games. That's not terrible. Um, they're getting the job done at home. Their road record is pretty much what everyone's is. They're one win one, or one draw, two losses. Um, it's pretty much what you 
what your road record tends to be in MLS. Um, yeah, that there's, you know, they've got Teal Bunbury up front, uh, which doesn't sound intimidating at all, but it's, it seems to have worked, uh, so far. Uh, Juan Agudelo has been playing wide, uh, until he got hurt. Um, I guess the one thing I will say is they've added a guy named Christian Pena, um, on the wing and he has been pretty good. He's kind of flying under the radar a little bit. Um, but he's added some dribbling ability that they didn't really have before some, some ability to get one-on-one and actually create something. Um, so that's good. So they've improved a couple spots. Um, but it still kind of feels like this could have been like this and the J heaps revs on on paper aren't really that different. Yeah. And one thing, I think that the biggest difference seems to be that they are taking their chances and they're either getting good goalkeeping or lucky at the other end. Um, Using American soccer analysis as numbers, they are the team that is most overperforming their expected goals differential. So you take the expected goals for the expected goals for their other team, and uh, you compare that to reality, and they're the team that is most overperforming those numbers. Philadelphia is at the other end of the spectrum. They are <laughs> right. <laughs> they are so bad at finishing right now. They are Toronto FC is the team that is second worst. Um, against or second most underperforming, and Philadelphia is twice their number as far as the difference. Um, it's it's comical, really. But New England seems like a team that this this might not be sustainable on the numbers, just because they are so overperforming. And there's no reason for them to. They don't have an, a clinical finisher, or their their chances they're creating aren't um, the type that wouldn't be captured by expected goals models um so they're not like the you know the the fabiana spindola versions of dc united that that would so overperform their numbers where there is there's a reason to think why they they should be doing that but with new england i don't see what that is next up in the eastern conference uh the columbus crew and if if new england are an enigma that seems like they they shouldn't be uh as far up as they are the crew are exactly the opposite jason we we said at the beginning of the year that the the crew looked like they could be a top three team right now they're fifth in the east i still think they could be a top three team yeah uh, they've had some um some slightly unlucky breaks um they've had some games that they probably should have been smarter um uh about the way they went about their business against DC in Annapolis, they really should have approached the, the red card situation a little differently. Um, but I think ultimately those were games where they probably created enough chances to win and they just couldn't quite find a finish or, you know, that little bit of luck. Um, but they, they had that little fall off. It was three straight losses, but then if you take those losses out, it's, uh, four games unbeaten and then three games unbeaten. So, um, I think the crew are just fine. I think that they're probably going to, if anything, move maybe up a spot by the end of the year, uh, up to fourth. Um, I, I don't see them being a team that has much to worry about. They just need to stick to doing what they're doing because, you know, the biggest issue they're running into right now is that their wingers haven't necessarily been as productive as their wingers from 2017. Um, but that's, you know, that's really it. It's not that big of a deal, um, especially if, uh, Harrison awful is now going to become a goal threat from right back. So, um, they're, they're fine. 
the the, the crew, even though DC has done, um, you know, actually had three pretty good halves against them and then one very bad half. Um, I think the crew are are going to be there at the end of the season for sure. Uh, moving up another spot, unfortunately, this brings us to the uh, New York Red Bulls. That that team in Jersey has a really good goal differential from eight games. Uh, they are plus eleven, sitting in fourth on fifteen points. Um, they're 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 also pretty good. I don't think we should give them any more words than than that. Uh, next up is Orlando City, sitting in third. The Purple Lions are second on points per game. They're actually better points per game than NYCFC. But I, I they're, they're a team that again like. Uh, New England, they they they're a better version of New England in a sense where they they keep winning games. They it doesn't really make sense. They've won six in a row. And Jason, you were looking at their schedule before the show. We were talking. There's a chance they could go from winning six in a row to losing three or four in a row. Yeah, uh, Orlando. You know they played DC in the opener. Uh, they lost to Minnesota. They uh, lost at NYCFC, but since then they've beaten the Red Bulls when they rested everybody um, for the Champions League, and that that was still four three. That still pushed Orlando to their their limits. Um, they beat Portland, which is no real achievement this year. Um, they beat Philly, which is not really a big deal. They beat San Jose just barely at home, which shouldn't be that difficult when San Jose flies from uh, from San Jose. Um, they beat or they went to Colorado and won, but Colorado's not very good either. Um, they beat RSL in Orlando and again had to come back. They were down one nothing in that one. So um it's not it's six wins and you know you know, you don't want to dismiss a six game winning streak ever. I mean, every team in the world would, would like that. Um, but it's not like they've been beating ML they've beaten beating up on the teams near the bottom. And now they play Atlanta, they play TFC, Chicago. Uh, at NYCFC, at Vancouver. Um, they don't have another... Their, their next easy game, realistically, is at Montreal. And even that's, you know, that game is probably going to finish 5-4. Um, they actually have Montreal back-to-back, it looks like, which is strange. In in the middle of June, they'll play Montreal before and after the World Cup break. So <laughs> I don't know why, but here we are. Uh, NYCFC is in second place. Um, if you look at their goal differential and their their expected goals numbers they're they're kind of middle of the pack they they somehow have a negative expected goal differential right now which was really surprising to me because they're NYCFC they're they usually when they look good they can look really really good mm-hmm. and then there are times that they just look very very mortal yeah uh I think mostly they're going to be fine. Um, I think this weekend exposed the fact that for whatever reason, uh, when they face the Red Bulls, things kind of go off the rails for them a little bit. They don't handle the, you know, the the high press. Uh, I mean, they get pressed a lot. A lot of teams realize that to go attack NYCFC, you've really got to press them. If you sit back, they'll break you down. Um, but the Red Bulls are better at pressing than everyone else. And for whatever reason, um, you know, I, I know Patrick Vieira was very upset after this, uh, you know, I mean, they lost four, nothing and the game was effectively over at, by the fourth minute. It was two, nothing already. Um, they, there, you know, there was a little bit of bad luck. That second goal took a deflection. That is the only reason the ball got over Sean Johnson. He was going to make that save otherwise, but, um, 
Yeah, the, the NYCFC, I, I feel like they're going to be right there at the end as far as the Supporter Shield race. But I think this vulnerability uh, in big games, this weird tendency to sort of not play up to their standards for whatever reason, is going to haunt them in the playoffs again. They, they look to me like a team that um, will be fine for the regular season, and they'll probably, you know, they'll probably have three or four games where they blow someone out completely. But then come playoff time, they're going to have one of these where it just falls apart for no apparent reason, and um, everyone's wondering well, what happened to NYCFC. And I think it's. Um, it's something mental with that group of players. I don't think it's Vieira. I think it's just the something happens with that group when it's uh, the lights come up and it's a really high pressure uh, game day for some reason. I was going to put it on Patrick Vieira and, and okay. make an Arsenal joke, but um, I won't. And instead, we'll move on to the team that has been far and away the class of the East this year. That's Atlanta United. The Interlopers down there have a frankly obscene goal differential if if new york's was absurd then this one is is something else entirely they are plus 13 from nine games played and uh jason you pointed out to me that that is in spite of a four nothing loss to start the year which means that over the last eight games they are plus 17 they are better than two goals a game yeah they're more than two goals a game better than their opponents over that time and i will point out that dc united was exactly two goals worse than Atlanta, which puts right. them in the top half. <laughs> yeah. Uh, DC's, you know, com- being completely outplayed for almost the entire game and then snatching a goal late uh, off of a mistake um, turns out to be a pretty good showing against Atlanta. Um, <laughs> At least a not bad one. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the better performances you could get, uh, given that everyone else is just getting destroyed. Um, yeah. They've, they managed that. Um, you know, they switched to the three five two, uh, and it worked like a charm against DC. And it wasn't just because of DC's issues. It was just what they needed to do to be a little better. They've also mixed some things up. They're not the 100% stomp on the gas, um, go, go, go kind of team they were last year. They've been willing to stand off a little bit. They've been able to absorb pressure a little more than they used to. Um, they can actually play a little bit more of a standard um mls style they don't necessarily have to do um the 100 percent pure tata version of themselves that they were last year um so i think that makes them actually more dangerous because now they've shown that they have uh, a couple different clubs in their bag whereas last year it was just you know if you could withstand them being at full speed you were probably going to get something out of the game and now they can say that they can see that happening and say like okay we'll we'll pull back a little bit and you know make this a little more of a uh thoughtful game and and see what happens then because they've still got Almiron and Joseph Martinez up front and you know if games get kind of cagey and kind of uh, tactical that's a good trump card to have uh because you know you might the other team might mostly play you to a standstill and nothing's really happening. And all of a sudden you happen to have two of the best players in the league who can make something out of nothing. And then you lose. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see if they can hold on to Almiron through this summer. Cause I know they want to, uh, but, but if the right offer comes along, you have to think that they, they're willing to sell because they've said all along, that's their, that's their model that they're going right. for. They don't want to hold him longer than he wants to be there because they want to pull the next guy up. And they might do that this summer. If they sell Amiron, they might pull the next Barco out of Argentina or Brazil or Uruguay or Chile or wherever. Right. Just pull the next one up and 
keep keep, keep the assembly going. line going because that's that's who they want to be and right. I, I i think right now i'm looking forward to that atlanta toronto eastern conference final that's going to be fun this october so we can just fast forward through the rest of the year we'll <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll slow it down on july 14th for for the first game on buzzard point but you know except for that let's just jump ahead um because i think we've we've pretty well covered everything and we've run over on this segment so we will be right back to preview real salt lake stick around this is filibuster hey ben um you wouldn't say this is a hostile work environment would you you can tell uh, me depends i mean well i should ask you i mean is are goats hostile uh, I think goats are, are hostile. I think that they are secretly trying to take over the world. But but if this were a hostile work environment, or if I were trying to steal your wages, or or do something else oh, nefarious, in a, I'm really not. Uh, but in a workplace environment, you know who to call, right? Because you live in the District of Columbia or Northern Virginia. I, I do. It's the Ehrlich Law Office. It is the Ehrlich Law Office. Uh, they they offer discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions in Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia, which means I can totally create a hostile work environment for Jason. Except, no, he, they, they wouldn't want me to say that. That would be bad. I do not want to create a hostile work environment for anyone. But Jason couldn't call them nonetheless because he lives in Maryland. Sorry, Jason. I'll fight my way through this. All right. <laughs> Uh, they handle workplace discrimination, wage theft, uh, non-compete clauses, and uh, non-solicitation litigation. They handle civil rights and government takings and disability and education law. They handle a lot of things. And if you are interested in a free consultation, head to ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. DC United uh, make for the Wasatch Range this weekend to hopefully recreate some magic from the 2013 U.S. Open Cup final. They'll visit Rio Tinto Stadium and Real Salt Lake Saturday night, uh, 9 o'clock kickoff on the East Coast. Watch it on News Channel 8 or your local Sinclair station or on ESPN Plus where you'll probably hear this man. Brian Dunseth is here to help us preview the game. Dunny, welcome back to Filibuster. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. I uh, always enjoy the conversations. Looking forward to tonight. You know, you know how we do it here. First question's got to be: What are you drinking? <laughs> I got a little uh, vodka diet Dr Pepper right now. It's, okay, uh, it's a gorgeous night out here in Salt Lake City. Yeah, I wish I was sitting outside. It's it's pretty nice here too. Um, of course, the weather's always good when the Caps somehow beat the Penguins. Wrong sport, but but <laughs> worth shouting out anyway. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. <laughs> so let's talk about RSL. Uh, last year, even though they missed the playoffs, their their run in was it, it might end up being the stuff of legend. They they seem to just hit the hit, you know hit all hit on all cylinders just a little bit too late to make it above the red line. Everyone thought they would come out firing this season, and that just hasn't happened. What's going on? Well, there's two things involved. Number one, um, I think the immediacy of understanding that the playoffs could potentially be a reality um, and and coming off just fantastic wins away at LA and at Portland um, and in a good international friendly competition with Manchester United out here at Rio Tinto Stadium. And it was quite honestly the first time that Mike Pecky had the opportunity to really stamp his ideology on this squad. The start of the season, though, a little bit different. 
Uh, no Yaramov's Tissian from the start. Um, the team has since parted ways with him, um, which is, I guess, a little bit of good and bad. Um, the good is that at least they're out from underneath the salary budget. I hate the word salary cap because it's so <laughs> fake in MLS. The salary budget uh, knock with Yura. Uh, the bad is it, the optics just don't look good because he was so good on loan from Spartak Moscow, and then he does a three-year deal. And for one reason or another, it just doesn't work out. And uh, the club and the player decide to part ways. Um, heading into this year, I think the team is more competitive. It's a better roster. It's, it's, it's the deepest roster this club's ever had. You know, the, the additions, um, when you look at this squad, Daimir Krylov coming over from Union Berlin and Bundesliga 2. Uh, Paulo Ruiz right now, um, an Argentine who's going to switch full allegiances internationally to Chile. Um, is a fantastic young dynamic player who can play in multiple positions. Um, but this this is a story of injuries. Uh, you think about Brooks Lennon starting at right back when he was a starting right attacking midfielder for Tab Ramos at the Under-20 World Cup. Uh, he's the sixth choice uh, at right back. You think about Nick Beasler, who's now three games in to his MLS career after being drafted as a top-five pick out of Portland and being released and playing with the Real Monarchs and getting 80 games underneath his belt in the USL level, uh, his pairing alongside Justin Glad, uh, pathless traveled, and yet Nick Beasler was the sixth choice center back. Then when you look at, at Paulo Ruiz at left back, um, DeMar Phillips, Adam Henley, uh, Danny Acosta, who was starting at the end of the year and for one reason or another just hasn't picked up where he left off. Paulo Ruiz is now the fourth choice uh, left back. So, there's there's been injury concerns. Platt has picked up Knox. Luis Silva's picked up Knox. Um, and this team, for what they think they are, they are underachieving at the moment. But I still think uh, that they have the capability of being a playoff team if they become more ruthless in the Western Conference with their finishing. That Western Conference is is super packed right now, even though. Uh, RSL are, I think, in ninth. They're only, if they win against DC United, which I certainly hope they don't, but if they do, they could jump as high as <laughs> third in, in the yeah. conference or at least be tied for third on points. Do you think the the, the lay of the West is playing any role in, in their performance or, or how does that enter their psyche? Um, I, I think what's, what's, I guess, a positive right now is the Western Conference is a complete disaster. Um, we, we, even when you look at Sporting Kansas City, uh, you know I, I give all the credit and plaudits to, to Peter Vermes and what they've done is they've kind of uh, recalibrated and, and restocked uh, offensively. Um, but it's it's one of those switches. I mean, a few years ago we were talking about how dominant the Western Conference is. I think last year is when we saw a significant switch where the Eastern Conference and the teams in the East were so much more competitive and deeper. Um, and better prepared for battles uh, than the West. Um, so I think we've seen a significant switch, and it, it feels like it happens every four or five years, you know, East back to the West. Um, but in particular, I think because, you know, guys like David Villa, guys like Sebastian Giovinco, legitimate goal scorers, you've seen teams really strengthen their spine in the Eastern Conference heading into the start of the new year, whereas the Western Conference has been more reactionary uh, in the summer transfer window, finding defensive midfielders and center backs. Um, the thing in the West is if you can put two or three results together, um, even even if it's not wins, even if it's just, you know, two wins and a draw or two draws and a win, 
um, next thing you know, you can be in a playoff position. So the good news for Real Salt Lake is is the the inability to put back to back consistent performances together, um, while frustrating, is still a realistic possibility with three points here, uh, you know, a point there. Next thing you know, in the West, it's it's been so forgiving that RSL can find themselves, like you said, uh, all the way up in the third place in the Western Conference. Uh, Donnie, I have to I have to ask some of the more um, I guess I tend to ask some of the more uh specific questions on some of the guys that maybe don't get uh talked about too much and right now uh with the injuries with um Mofsisian, uh on his way out right now RSL starting forward is uh or starting center forward is um Corey Baird can you tell us a little bit about yeah. him yeah so Corey Baird's an interesting uh young player so he's he's, he's out of the academy RSL academy um went to Stanford and he's one of those kids that really benefited from the college experience, uh, three national championships, uh, played alongside Jordan Morris uh, before Jordan Morris left to go to Seattle. Um, incredibly dynamic, young, exciting, honest. Uh, you know, his speed, his athleticism, he, he's got all that. And what's interesting about Corey is, is most like Brooks Lennon and, and Paulo Ruiz. Um, Corey in the preseason, when I first saw him, I was I was really interested to see how he would acclimate to the level of play after being so dominant with Jer- uh, Jeremy Gunn at Stanford. Um, and, and Mike tested him out. Mike Pecky tested him out as kind of a, a true eight before Daimir Krylock signed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Luke Mulholland was projected to be the starter alongside Kyle Beckerman. Um, and then he tried him kind of as a wide player because his athleticism and his speed and his intelligence with his movement um, became something a little bit different. And all of a sudden with, with Brooks starting it right back, uh, Corey got the opportunity to start as a wide left, or you know, he he, he came on in a few times, uh, and he was actually he had worked his way up ahead of Bofo Sarfedo, who was a starter for Tab Ramos at the under twenties on the left wing, um, in the attacking front three, while Brooks was on the right, uh, and so Corey came on as a sub on a few occasions. Then Plata was dropped for one reason or another, uh, and in the two games that he was dropped, Corey got the start. And Corey got a goal. It was really exciting. Um, brought a completely different element than Plata and Saverino. Um, and then next thing you know, Luis Silva picked up a hamstring injury uh, and, and Corey got the start. The, the big news was um, Alfredo Ortuño, the Spaniard, who had come over and had been signed by Real Salt Lake to be kind of the replacement for Yuramas Sissian. And Ortuño just hasn't really settled. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that's the style of play, whether that's uh, you know a, a foreign country, a different language, um, you know, being away from family and friends. Uh, it, he's just one of those players that with target allocation money um, and the influx of cash into the roster, uh, there's hits and there's misses. And so far, Ardenia has been a miss. So Corey's taking his chance. He brings a different element. Um, you know, and, and he, if you look back at, at Sunday's game in Orlando, you know, he, he gets in behind Lamina Sane, who's Senegalese international, Bordeaux, Werder Bremen. And his, his intelligence to kind of curl his run and then his athleticism to get in behind and that deft little chip over Joe Bendick was one of those moments where you say, aha, this kid really has something special. Um, next thing you know, he hits the post, what, six, seven minutes later. Uh, he gets stuffed by Bendick in the second half with a fantastic kick save uh, by Joe Bendick. Um, and then you realize, okay, this is, this is a young kid 
who's going to create a lot of chances, but at the same time, he's going to miss a couple of chances. So um, exciting young player, really excited for his future, super humble, uh, super intelligent, obviously, with a Stanford education, um, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a young man that I think wants to continue to learn uh, and be open to the, all the constructive criticism that comes along with playing that point striker, but a drastically different type of player uh, than obviously you guys know with Luis Silva, who isn't necessarily a point striker, is more of kind of a link-up, rhythm, possession type of player. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see Silva on a team that, um, you know, RSL's kind of played a little bit of uh, a little bit of direct soccer this year. I think I saw a couple weeks ago something that said that they had had the most uh, long balls played per game, um, which is kind of, for Silva, it's kind of like a little of uh, here we go again, because he out here, uh, he was having to deal with that a lot, and it's not really his style of play. Um, but I, I, I guess the other player that I want to, you mentioned, um, Demir Krylock. Um, and I know when he was signed, the the word on him with his time in Germany with uh, Union Berlin was that he was the kind of player that the fans absolutely adored, um, that they, uh, you know, really idolized him. Um, and I know it's taken a few, uh, a few weeks for him to maybe settle in, but it seems like when I've seen him, it looks like he's uh, figuring out MLS a little bit. Um, what do you, what do you think of him so far? The, I, I think you're right um, with your description of him. He, he, for those that pay attention to kind of Champions League group stage out of Croatia, he started with Rijeka um, and became the captain uh, and then got his big move to Union Berlin and a team that was always really fighting for promotion. He became an iconic figure, uh, and he was a true eight. He was a goal scorer. He was a provider um, and a good link-up player between the six and the, and the creative midfield. Um, here it's been it's it's him settling in, uh, getting used to his partnership with with Kyle. Um, but specifically, it's, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because one of the telltale signs when Real Salt Lake is really clicking is that off the ball on the defensive side when they're when they're trying to keep their team shape, that Saverino and Plata are, are tracking and they're doubling down and they're helping. And when that happens, that means Kyle Beckerman is not getting sucked out in the wide position. And what happened earlier in the season is when Kyle got sucked out, uh, when the two wide players weren't weren't starting in their right position defensively, uh, Daimir got pulled back deeper and deeper. And that's something that Mike, in the past four games, have really harped on publicly is, I want to see Daimir higher. That means Sabarino and Plata have to make sure that there's defensive responsibilities. And that's not every single time, obviously, because when you turn the ball over in transition play, there's going to be chances here or there. Um, but that they're just cognizant of what their back-pressing responsibilities are. So Damir is, it, it, it kind of looks like a, a poked triangle where Kyle will be the sixth, Damir will be somewhere on the left or the right ahead of him, and then Albert Rusnak will be kind of the creator in underneath Corey Baird. And what's a little bit different um, is that Corey gives you that element to get in behind. So now you have a guy that will actually threaten the two center backs where Luis Silva will more be kind of the stand-up, Alvaro Saborio, static, central type of point striker. Um, Corey will find those, those seams to create space for Albert, which means Daimir can push a little bit higher, and Kyle becomes kind of your true six. So um, he's, he's, he's a pleaser. He's starting to get a little bit more comfortable, um, but it's, it's also 
a guy who was a captain in his previous two clubs that I think little by little, um, as we're, what, eight, nine games in, uh, starting to find his rhythm and his own kind of individual confidence of, of being a leader but not wearing the captain's band for Real Salt Lake right now. Um, I kind of want to pull back a little from the the rest of the team. Um, I've noticed, you know, I, I cover the Spirit as well, and they were just out in Utah uh, to play the Royals. And I've been really impressed with how that the Royals Salt Lake as an organization has has incorporated not just their NWSL club, but also their USL club because you know DC United has theirs coming soon. Um, and it's got me thinking, you know, how do you um, how do you turn this into something more than just, well, we've got a team and we send some guys there and, and you know, who knows what's going to happen. Um, it seems like RSL really has a good handle on making that a, a holistic top to bottom thing. Um, how, how much of a commitment is that from the club and how important do you think it is to the, the folks in charge right now? Yeah, I, I, it's been incredible to watch. Um, never in my wildest dreams that I think number one, you would see a USL side. Uh, attached to Real Salt Lake. Number two, that you would see an $80 million facility built out um, at Zion's Bank training facility down in Harriman uh, that would house the academy, um, which you're looking at uh, almost uh, 100 to 150 different kids. Um, but you're looking at a STEM school. You're looking at the housing for Real Monarchs and Real Salt Lake down there. And then what Mr. DeRoy Hansen has done with Utah Royals um, is nothing short of phenomenal. I, and I know that, that Orlando and the Portland Thorns um, are given a lot of credit for what they have been, how they've been built and, and the infrastructure that has been supporting them. But Mr. DeLoy Hansen has um, not only matched what he's given Real Salt Lake for the Utah Royals, uh, but if you look at their locker rooms, so if you're at Rio Tinto Stadium and you guys are watching the game and the benches are on the left and the right, uh, Real Salt Lake is on the left. So underneath, when the tunnel walks out to the left, is all of Real Salt Lake's locker room underneath the stadium. So it goes all the way to the left. And it is a phenomenal facility. So to the right now, for the home side, uh, Utah Royals have been given the exact same dimensions of Real Salt Lake for their locker room inside Rio Tinto Stadium. Uh, but I would argue that it's actually better than what Real Salt Lake has. Um, Mr. Roy Hansen has is, is, is gone above and beyond, and there was a lot of question marks when he took over uh, from Dave Checkett, who initially had brought Real Salt Lake uh, to the state of Utah. Um, but his, 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 you know, we, we see a lot of owners in Major League Soccer over the years, and you guys have been around forever. I've been around since 97. I was a party contraction with the Miami Fusion. I've seen a lot of owners, uh, champagne life on a beer budget. Um, Deloy is a billionaire uh, three or four times over. And to see what he's built out in Harriman with the training facility, uh, with the STEM school, with, with Real Salt Lake as, as uh, you know, the, the youth academy and Martin Vasquez moving up here, and then seeing Mark Briggs and the Real Monarchs and winning USL, uh, the, 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 I guess the shield uh, for the record, they got knocked out in penalties in the first round, which was tough to swallow. And then to see the Royals with Laura Harvey and, and an international coach who's just a phenomenal human being. Um, and then to see Mike Pikey and Real Salt Lake, it's, it's been incredible to watch. I, I never thought I would see the infrastructure put in place. And I, and I say it time and time again, guys, 
I am in, after being in New England and Miami and Columbus and Dallas and, and Salt Lake and LA and Chivas and being over in Sweden, I never thought I'd see the day where the infrastructure was put in place like this. And I'm, I'm extremely jealous in a lot of ways and, <laughs> and completely envious um, that these kids have, there's no excuse, top to bottom, there's no excuse for them um, because everything, every possible thing you can think of has been thought of and executed behind the scenes. We can only hope we'll be saying the same thing in a year's time for yeah, DC yeah. United. I really hope you guys are. I mean, I, I, I go back to my days. My my first playoff start at RFK with doing the Revolution, Alexi Lawless to my to my right, and thinking about RFK and, and the old DC United teams and all of the you know the the white the big thick white stripes on the black jerseys and. Uh, I always kind of, I'll always say, you know, the DG United and watching Barra Brava and all the supporter groups bouncing on, on those extension stands and the smell from the grass and, you know, the, the beer and maybe a little bit of the pee from RFK, the, the <laughs> raccoon pee. Um, I'm, I'm excited for the organization to see the transition Saudi field. Um, and, and I hope that once this is, is done and dusted, that, you know, th- this organization will have kind of the same infrastructure and behind-the-scenes support um, that we're starting to see in Major League Soccer, whether that be, you know, Kansas City or LAFC or, or LA Galaxy or Sporting Kansas City. Um, you know, I, I think we're – Atlanta United, I think we're starting to see all of those come to fruition, which is a, a really important step behind the scenes. Um, you know, we always talk about the quality of play, but I think the infrastructure – is just as important, if not more important, um, for the history and 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 kind of this weird three years where I think we're we're fast forwarding in real time um, to see the growth of Major League Soccer as a whole. I think that's a great way to put it. Um, even while they're finishing up Audi Field on Buzzard Point, DC United has started land prep out in Loudoun County for the yeah. USL Stadium and the training ground out there. So we're seeing the the spotlight and we're also seeing the infrastructure being built yeah. all at the same time. So um, again, hopefully in a year we're, we're talking about how great it is for all levels of, of DC United and uh, the contrast that, that we saw from, from the, from now. Uh, yeah. And, and, re- and really quick, I mean, this is from, I, I obviously I'll, I'm going to come from a Homer perspective with growing up with Denny Olson and, and playing with him on the twenties and, 23s, but um, I I know this is easy to say from the outside looking in because I I haven't um, been invested the same way DC United supporters have been over the years. But I, but I just hope that with all the ups and downs and and the inability to kind of match the growth of what we've seen from Major League Soccer over the years with with certain clubs that that you know Dave Casper and Benny are are given the I'm trying to word this the right way. Given the tools and given the opportunity to succeed um, the right way, as opposed to just kind of strapping on a Band-Aid and hoping for the best, and maybe over-punching uh, what reality really looks like um, for a club that, in my opinion, from the outside looking in, that's that's been a bit hamstrung uh, for one reason or another in terms of kind of growth and, and trajectory. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair perspective and it's funny how much the league has changed from 2014 when DC United went worst to first or in in the East. Yeah. 
Um, and that's not something you can do through the reentry draft or many other means nowadays. So. <laughs> yeah. Restocking with established MLS guys over and over and over. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. In four years, the, the world is turned completely upside down. Uh, let's get you out of here. But but first, uh, zooming back into this weekend, if you were in Benny Olsen's kicks uh, on the visiting technical area this weekend, how would you come out against RSL? What would you be focusing on? Um, I think the big thing for Real Salt Lake that they've struggled with is kind of the waves of pressure um, that they've they've seen from certain clubs. And, um, you know, it, it, what we've seen from Real Salt Lake over the last, I would say, on it, quite honestly, since Jason Christ left and the Jeff Kassar reign, was you, you moved away from um, a Rio Tinto Stadium that was a fortress, quite frankly. I mean, people were afraid of coming in. Um, and even your reference about the Open Cup, I mean, I, I was a part of that game, and, and D-Rose one shot on frame was the difference between those two teams on a night, and full credit, right? You give, you take what the game gives you. Um, but it, it's it, people now come to Utah, and they don't have that same, I don't know, they, they don't have that same mentality where they think, oh, yeah, no, a point, man. If we could get a point here at Rio Tinto Stadium at altitude against a really good team, yeah, dude, we take it for sure. Well, now it's like, forget the point. Let's see if we can get the three points. Um, so for RSL, uh, the troubles that they've had is low block defending. How do they deal with teams that kind of sit um, and, and afford them the simplistic possession? And then once the ball gets into their defensive half, they start attacking with numbers and closing down space. Um, I would say transition when the ball turns over. Uh, and we saw this with Sasha Question and Dom Dwyer at the weekend. Uh, can you pick up wide spaces, kind of like the old school Robbie Keane, Landon Donovan days, Jossie Zardes at LA Galaxy, where everybody thought that they were the best team in the league, but in reality, they were just a transition team. Um, that's been one of the struggles for Real Salt Lake. And then uh, set pieces uh, with kind of the inexperience in the back line. Um, one of the things that they've is looking uh, and, and making sure that, that they can defend corners and set pieces. Uh, and, and you could look at that as Lamina Asane uh, and his free header getting away from Justin Glad and getting mm-hmm. hit. So I would say that's kind of the, the start of that. But um, it'll be interesting. I think this is a, is a massive opportunity and a test. It's, it's starting to, when you think about Eastern Conference versus Western Conference, um, it's, it's a weird psychology. Uh, do, do coaches and teams really look at it as a big opportunity or are the intra-conference you know, six point swings more important. Um, and I think that's all in the eye of the beholder when it comes to, uh, to the individual matchups. Well, that's a question we'll, we'll have to answer in more detail another day. Donnie, thanks again for coming on. Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet? Uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Brian Goldstaff, and then every day alongside the meatball, Tony Miola from the great state of New Jersey on Sirius XM, Channel 157 on Counterattack. Uh, every afternoon, four to seven Eastern. You know, I don't know if I would call New Jersey that great of a state. <laughs> I'm just using the meatballs. Uh, <laughs> Tony, Tony Miola, big old meat hands. That, that's his uh, great state in New Jersey every time I get a call. And I kind of throw up a little bit every single time. But <laughs> hey, if Bruce Springsteen's from there, I guess I give him a pot. All right. That's, that's a fair point. I, I love the boss. Yeah. Well, 
thank you all for uh, for listening. Find us at blackandredunited.com if you want to support us financially. We're at patreon.com slash filibuster, where right now our patrons at $5 a month and above can listen to Jason give a, a little uh, dissertation on DC United's application of high pressure, which hopefully will come into play this weekend at RSL. Find us on Twitter at filibusterdcu for the podcast at Black and Red U for the website. Send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. Find us wherever podcasts are served. Mostly, though, please tell a friend about the show. Tell us, tell them about the, the fun conversation we had with Dunny this week. We'd love you forever if you did that. We'll love you forever no matter what. We're friendly guys. Mostly, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, for Jason, Ben should be back next week. And thanking Dunny one more time, I'm Adam. Say goodbye, Jason. The Cavs beat the Penguins. I can't believe it. They really did. That happened.